Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Nate Carl, CEO and co-founder of Spec, a fraud defense technology platform that's raised $30 million in funding. Nate, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, it is fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? I'm bad at quick summaries, like famously bad at quick summaries. So uh, like lifelong hacker, journalism dropout, uh, like worked through the realms of enterprise software forever before I found a, a calling in fraud fighting and just adored the hand-to-hand combat nature of it uh, and just has been working in this field specifically for about 10 years before we started spec. And when you were like 15 years old, did you dream of going into this or how'd you, how'd you find that path? Well, like, I was a fraudster back in the day, right? So I remember like when you know eBay was starting to get big, I used to do this thing where I would make lotteries on eBay so we like match the gathering cards and you would put a bunch of them in there like, oh, yeah, one of them has this like amazing, very valuable card. You'd end up selling these for, you know, $50 an auction. And like in reality, none of these packs had anything more than like $5 worth of cards in them. And, and then, you know, I would like buy my own auction out and then be like, yeah, post in the comments. Yeah, I won. This is amazing. And like take a picture of, you know, of this card. And like it would, the irony of that is, you know, 20 years later, you know, like wasn't a teenager anymore. I would end up working at eBay helping stop this exact same type of thing. Uh, so a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I feel like most entrepreneurs, if they're you know being honest and they go back to those early years, they have something pretty similar. Right. I think eBay was that platform. Right. I don't know about you, but I'm 33 now. So I was born in like 1990. Like when you were a young entrepreneur, you wanted to do something, you're 15 or 16 eBay was like your only real place to go. So I, I would imagine a lot of entrepreneurs have a, a very similar story to some extent. Oh, yeah. Like if I was, you know, if someone's like, oh, I want to like run a business when I grow up, I'm like, excellent. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the dumpster of like a local Walmart. You're going to pull out things and sell it on eBay, right? And if you could figure out that, then like you're, you're on your way to figuring this out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, a few other quick questions we'd like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder do you admire the most? And what do you admire about that? For me, so this is weird. Like, I always feel like people answer this question with founders that they've never met or founders whose books they read. And maybe this is some privilege of being in Silicon Valley, but like being able to actually go meet people and like understand who they are as people. So for me, like, so Michael Viscuso uh, was a founder at Carbon Black. Uh, he's like, you know, actually as, a, as an investor and advisor uh, with us today. But just like going through that journey of like working, you know, for the NSA and then making the decision to strike out and just having way too big of an ambition to get that done. Like, and that was just incredible. Like, all right, how do you how do you have that ambition and go forward and like, no, you don't know those things and, and you know, push that forward. So like, uh, I think Mike's been huge. Uh, I think Laura Mather, you know, she founded Silvertail Systems, also ex-NSA. And yeah, just understanding what it is like, especially being a woman CEO and the you know, founder and then like ultimately like being the founder and like handing off the CEO reins to somebody else in the company and like what that transition looked like and carrying that forward, especially in like the early aughts was just so interesting but like go out and meet people like i think that's the most important thing is like hey, you know founders are busy they're always building stuff but you can find out at a time get some coffee and just it's the best way to learn nice love that 
What about books? And the way we like to frame this, and we got this from Ryan Holiday. So Ryan Holiday calls them quick books. So he defined a quick book as something like a, a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you? Yeah, this answer for me is always a little bit dicey. So like, hear me out before you jump to quick judgment. I don't read it annually anymore, but I used to annually reread The Prince, which is like this old book by Niccolo Machiavelli. Uh, it's just like literally about like how a prince in a Italian city state should conduct themselves. It is largely considered to be like pathological relationship building, but I, I find a lot of wisdom in looking at ugly things. Uh, like ugly things shouldn't stick around. So if an ugly thing sticks around, it usually does for some sort of reason. There's some sort of like underlying reason why it does. So if you, so if you ever want to get rid of an ugly thing, you have to understand what it is in order to unpack that. Um, and, or if there's like some sort of lesson to be taken from an ugly thing that nobody wants to look at, especially when it comes to like that very like manipulative and like I'll say like transactional way of like looking at relationships, like just kind of like unpacking that and like, okay, but why? Uh, There's always been like something that really you know, kind of like rocks you all the way down because you will bump into those behaviors at certain points in time and just understanding why uh, helps you move forward and I think just be a better leader. Yeah, I read that book uh, a few years back. Did they ever say if that was actually real and based on a true story? Like, was he a real person, Machiavelli? So yes, he was a real person. The understanding is that like he was largely imprisoned or like, you know, uh, kept to be effectively like a vassal of the Medici family. But there's a whole bunch of legend uh, <laughs> around that as well. So I think there's something about that era in specific that I think is in some ways like both romantic and in other ways just like, oh, maybe that was peak capitalism <laughs> because it, it literally is just like, you know, dollars you, you turned from a field turned into swords that you used to march in a, an opposing city state. Yeah. Another book that I've read that I, I think is like probably the more like modern take on that was 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Have you read that one? Yes, I have. <laughs> His books are, they're big. They're, they're yep. big, they're long, but they're uh, they're fascinating. It definitely puts you in, uh, I don't know about you, but like for me, it put me in like kind of a dark state of mind. Like I, I can't read those before I go to bed. They're uh, they're pretty dark books overall. Yeah. Like you, you never want to feel like human existence or relationship is something that you could boil down to like code, right? You want to feel like, no, there's something like a little bit more behind it. And I think there is, I think there's a little bit of both. I think, you know, it's, it's not one or the other. It's a little bit of both. We are, you know, creatures of habit and we will do some things the same way over and over again, given the same information. But like, also there's like a little bit of, there's a little bit of chance. There's a little bit of soul that I think, you know, sometimes can What's the saying? Like, God doesn't play dice, but he likes to bend them, you know, and like, and just being able to bend the dice. Nice. Love it. Now let's switch gears and, and let's dive deeper here into spec. So how we always like to start this is let's talk about the problem you solve. So can you just articulate for us? What is that problem? Yeah, basically, uh, if you are working with consumers on the internet at scale, uh, you probably have built a very large and beautiful architecture full of microservices. And those are very slow. <laughs> you know, if you're talking about everything that you might need or want, it probably is an API that you have to plug in somewhere along the way, which would be totally fantastic and fine if you could ship experiences that could stay static for a long time. But unfortunately, we live in a crazy chaotic world where we have frauds and scams that you don't have to go to the dark web to learn about anymore. Like you can just go to TikTok or YouTube. And uh, if you know the right words to search, you can literally get the exact how-to of what you need in order to make a significant amount of money off of these uh, larger brands. So when you have to deal with really uh, chaotic, fast-changing pressure from you know these different areas, as well as like these consumer, we'll say like the consumer preferences of like how they want to pay or how they want to interact with a brand, 
it becomes very, very difficult to live in this microservices era and just keep up. So what we provide to the brands that we work with is a orchestration platform that pulls all of this consumer information off of the real-time interactions so that they can make adjustments and decisions on the fly without having to work with their internal really complex chain of how they manage consumer data. And what types of brands are using the platform? I think just big global consumer-facing brands think uh, finance, think media and entertainment, ticketing quite a bit in the marketplaces section. So basically, like if you were showing up and uh, selling something for money and getting some sort of payout, uh, there is a lot of, we'll say just say chaos on those platforms. And those are the people that were solving problems for them at scale. And take us back to the early days. So I, I see you founded the company in April 2020. I mm-hmm. do remember there was a lot going on in the world in, a, a little bit. in 2020, as you, you may recall as well. So what was it like founding the company right there in the, the heart of the pandemic, or I guess the early days of the pandemic? I mean, that's the only way that we would have gotten it done. So the, the reality is we had the idea for this back in 2014. My co-founder and I did back in 2014. We were bumping into this problem already back then. And our sentiment around it was, this is amazing. This is absolutely the way that businesses will handle this someday. And we're too early. All right. Like, we're not going to quit our jobs. We're too early. We know that, you know, this go to market is going to be too hard. And then when the pandemic kicked off, I was at eBay at the time and we were seeing, uh, you know, the prices for fraud services get cut in half. Attack volumes were already starting to slide up. We saw that the yeah, consumer spending was going up, which makes it like a larger population to hide inside of. And then we were seeing just budgets freeze everywhere, um, which you know hits operational teams that cover things like fraud, scams, abuse, and even some like low-level cybercrime uh, the most. So like, okay, like we had this idea for six years. If we didn't do it now, we were never going to do it. We were just full of crap, right? So I was like, all right, like we kind of like kind of called our own bluff and pushed in to do that. And the timing was very good. Uh, you know, since then, uh, fraud attacks have about tripled uh, since before the pandemic. Right now, scams outnumbered uh, traditional cybercrime losses four to one. Uh, so like it's we were right about that. But like the go to market was still hard, you know, and, and I think those early days of going out and talking to investors, and we still see this today, we'll talk to VCs where they don't actually understand the difference between cybersecurity and fraud. And like, and you know, the, the drawing that line is like very hard. And we're just so much of what we had to do is just education in those early days. So maybe I don't understand the difference there. Maybe listeners don't. What is the difference or how do you separate fraud from cybersecurity? I can yeah. understand in some categories of tools how that makes sense, but if you can provide a high level, that would be awesome. I mean, the easiest way to think about it is, you know, uh, cybersecurity are basically bad guys who are trying to break a system or break you know, a machine or break a bit of code in order to get access to something that they shouldn't. And you know, fraud is people who are using a system in a way that the system will allow but for nefarious purposes, right? So for instance, you know, you might be able to go onto a site and sign up for a credit card and get a credit card shipped to you and then use that credit card. And that's totally fine. But like, if you're doing that with a stolen identity, that's fraud, right? Or if you're, you know, doing that and, you know, reassigning the payment from somewhere else, that's fraud. Mm, Got it. Makes a lot of sense. How would you describe the state of fraud today? So I know you hinted at that there with the the increase in fraud that we're seeing, but can you just paint a picture for us of what the fraud landscape looks like and just essentially the state of fraud? Fraud's a little bit interesting. Most of fraud you don't hear about. There's no strong regulatory requirement to report fraud. Uh, so you know, a fun game that we always play is that you can look at the annual reports or even the quarterly reports of publicly traded companies and you can find where they are hiding their fraud losses. Uh, fraud losses are huge and they just kind of peanut butter around so you don't see them. There's this like original sin of if you remember 
back in the early aughts, you know, e-commerce was just starting to become a more mainstream thing. And people were afraid to put their credit cards online because they're like, hey, like, you know, that's crazy. Like someone could just use my credit card to do something nefarious. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, they, they got you. They want you to spend this. You know, they'll, they'll handle you, uh, you know, and get that all right. The reality is, is that, no, it is exactly as crazy and dangerous as we thought it was in the early aughts. Uh, the difference is, is that the merchants pretty much eat all those costs. All right. You know, the merchants are willing to lose tens of millions of dollars a year, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars a year, because their online business might be worth two, three, five billion. Um, so it's huge and it's getting bigger. I think the thing that has happened that is, you know, the big trend is there is this generation of digital natives that are just incredible incredibly fluent with technology and will share information in really unlikely ways. You know, I mentioned YouTube and TikTok. You know, I work with a lot of people in the marketplaces around like sneakers. And, you know, they're cutting basically 1099s to kids, like 15-year-olds who are moving half a million dollars worth of sneakers, some of which may have been definitely absolutely sourced with illicitly obtained uh, funds, right? So, there's so much, you know, I think, knowledge and you know, and the distribution of that knowledge. And I think there are also some different attitudes around it in terms of like, hey, if I can get away with this, you know, Ticketmaster is a big company. Nike's a big company. You know, eBay is a big company. They can soak this up. They can afford it. Right. And like the attitudes towards that, like I think have always been you know, a little bit like anti-corporate. Uh, but I think we can see it just in the raw numbers. Uh, I think the popularity is just through the roof. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. I think it was... This week, or maybe it was a, a few weeks ago, but the SEC had some ruling where they're going to make it so that companies have to disclose if they have cyber breaches. Do you think that's ever going to happen here when it comes to fraud? Or is that different? Because fraud, I guess, is happening every day, right? And it's not an individual occurrence like a cybersecurity breach could be. But do you think there's going to be any changing regulation that really forces them to fully disclose just how bad the fraud problem is? I think we, we're starting to see a little bit of it, but really it has to hurt consumers. Like if it hurts businesses, which a lot of fraud mostly hurts the business, there's going to be much wood behind the arrow to push regulation. Like where we're starting to see it recently, and we saw this about three weeks back, as uh, there is a bill being pushed through that will effectively fine marketplaces if they have content manipulations. So this is really just around fake reviews, right? So if you are publishing fake reviews, if you are you know, effectively representing like real consumer feedback, about a product that isn't true because it's being manipulated uh, either internally or by like external, like fraudulent and various like content abusers, that that platform will be liable for that. So the only reason that has oomph is because that hurts consumers uh, and anything that hurts consumers, you know, drives voter interest. Anything that drives voter interest is going to drive regulation. But I would say like the lobbying power of, you know, these large e-commerce brands really isn't set up in such a way to push for that. And in reality, like they're not going to want to ask for more reporting anyway. They'll be more happy to kind of sweep that into the rug. To give you an example of this, like there is a marketplace that I've worked with where their top of the line thing, you know, that they reported to the street, which is a big like jumping up and down point, is like how many new people were coming to the site or reactivating on the site. So many of those reactivations were under the covers, actually people who are getting their accounts, you know, they had dormant accounts that were being stolen by somebody else. 
But the way they reported it to the street was like, hey, these people came back, right? So, you know, there is this like perverse incentive to, you know, not have a reporting mechanism around fraud and allow, you know, these businesses to kind of create their own narrative uh, when they try to describe what's actually happening on their platforms. Oof. Did that get into like securities fraud then at some point if they're, you know, kind of not trying to stop the problem of, you know, these numbers almost being manipulated? Yeah, a thousand percent. Um, like one of the things with fraud fighters, yeah, so if they are, you know, for the companies they work for or, you know, the companies are providing services for, we obviously see a lot of the reality of the ground game of what's happening inside of these businesses. And as a result, they don't really get much of a platform to talk about it because a lot of this information is a little toxic. The reality is everyone does it and it's pretty hard to find like a motivation to change that. So, and you know, what, the way that you see this the most is just in the way that the business operates. If you see a brand that is offering, we'll just say like an amazing level of trust, right? So like if you are, you know, you every time you bring up Gmail, you're automatically logged in and have access to all this like super sensitive information that's obviously your inbox. Or every time you log into Amazon, it remembers who you are and immediately lets you check out. Like if you have that level of instant trust, they're probably doing a really good job, right? But if you don't, uh, if you don't see that, if you're jumping through a lot of hoops every time that you go through that, um, then probably they are losing a bunch. And then, you know, there's uh, a lot of, uh, we'll say like narrative crafting happening behind the scenes. Hmm, <laughs> makes sense. Now talk to us about landing your first early customer. So obviously every startup founder struggles with that in the early days, or it seems just hard to really get people to, to trust you when you're a new startup. What were those first paying customers like for you? So like the first paying customer came out of the blue. We were just talking to everyone that we possibly could, uh, which like, like I highly recommend everyone does if you're starting a company. Like if <laughs> you should talk to, to customers all the time. And like they were running into an issue. They were a gift card marketplace and they were running into hard times because of the pandemic. People were not buying gift cards to movie theaters and restaurants nearly as much. So as a result, they were bracing for the holiday season and they just did not have the resources they need to get the tools that they needed to get in place and to get the controls in place. They needed to not have uh, like gift cards, by the way, are just like a horrendous target for fraud, uh, just like the soup to nuts. They're basically cash equivalents that sit outside of like the normal KYC system. So that was a, an issue where, you know, we found them, they had this huge issue and we got them live on a prototype of our platform in straight up like eight hours, right? It was like our first customer deployment and like immediately went on to find like multiple attack vectors, like lock those down, you know, find the offending parties and then start to effectively ring fence around them. And like that was this incredible experience. It was like, okay, this is clearly a bluebird. This isn't a repeatable motion, but we know, <laughs> but we know we can drive commercial value. We know that the product works. And that was immense to getting to like our second customer. It was a different type of marketplace. I mean, a much larger but we had, it was interesting. We described our platform entirely incorrectly. And I think this advice gets given out a lot. You really don't know what you've built until your customers tell you. And like that, I think was just like point in where it's just like, oh, we have so much customer data that needs to be orchestrated. You know, that's what you do. I think we came out saying, hey, we're this fraud solution that deploys like a security solution. And they're like, that's not what you do. <laughs> like what you do is you orchestrate all of our customer data very, very quickly so that we can make you know, effective decisions about what to do with people on our platforms. Like, ah, yes. Thank you, customer. And can you give us an idea of the growth and traction that you're seeing today? Right now, it is. So our first enterprise, so like our first enterprise customer landed at, towards the end of last year. We crossed the million dollar book threshold uh, towards the beginning of this year. The summer's been tough. I will tell you that like 
just jumping over that chasm of being founder-led sales and you know, going into sales that is like outside-led, it's a very tough thing to do. Like we, you know, we were doing that in the middle of me raising, uh, which is incredibly difficult. Like, you know, fortunately, like I've got you know, a co-founder who was able to kind of get in and course correct, uh, you know, a lot sooner. But like that's been is a huge eye opener. I think from a traction perspective, we are on track to close out this year close to about it's going to be between three and four million, uh, depending on how uh, some of these uh, late quarter deals shape out for us. And what do you attribute to that growth from a marketing perspective? What are you doing that's working? So we got really crisp on what we are and who we are doing. I think messaging is the most important thing. As I said, like your customers have to tell you what you do, but they're all going to say something a little bit different. You kind of have to synthesize into what that is. Enterprise is tough. It's not good enough to have amazing technology. It's not good enough to solve an important problem. You also have to understand how they buy and the nuances of that and also like how the relationships at each of these deals, you know, how that matters and pushes through. I think would be one, there's a couple of superpowers around enterprise, but one of them is that like you have the opportunity to talk to all of your customers, right? So like if you, if it's get on a plane and get in a room, take them out to, you know, to lunch, like you can do that with 100% of your customer base relatively quickly, which I think has been an enormous piece of this. For us, it has definitely been around that piece and also just how we plug in with the larger ecosystem as a whole. There's an existing $24 billion industry. Uh, and that we were able to effectively turn into like a no code proposition. And that has been really helpful in the sense of, you know, how we're helping, you know, this existing marketplace move forward. And you mentioned there that the crispness of the message, that's something that I think every founder struggles with. You know, a lot of founders that I bring on the podcast, I go to their website and I just walk away with no idea what they do <laughs> before the interview. So I think it's just something that you know, all founders struggle with especially when it's founders that come from like technical backgrounds, you know, they weren't marketers, they were practitioners. So how did you get your message so crisp? What was that process like behind the scenes? Did you go through exercises internally? Did you hire an agency to help? What was that process like? So messaging is never done. Uh, <laughs> like it's, it's just always moving. Even if I like pull up our website today, like where there's a huge messaging initiative we're working on right now, that'll refresh a ton of that. What I would say is it got really crisp for us when we had enough of our customers reflecting that back to us. We also brought in an amazing product marketing hire. One of the things that is like a lesson that I think is really important for someone to say, I have a product background, my co-founder has a product background. We assumed that because we both had product backgrounds, we knew exactly what this was and like how to sell it. The reality is, and like this seems obvious when I say it, if a bunch of people understood the problem from the same context that we did and the technology to solve that problem from the same context that we did, they would have also started this company, right? So, so uh, you have to figure out like the gaps, like, okay, what is it that we saw that other people didn't? How do we close that gap uh, in order to get there? But I, from an agency perspective, I, we didn't go down that route. Uh, what we found is that the combination of like Market specificity and technology made that like a little bit too much of us trying to kind of leak those through. You know, bringing in our first uh, internal product marketing hire, I think, was absolutely the right move. Like we brought in our head of sales and our head of product marketing at the same time, and you know that has been enormously transformative in like really getting down to that. Mm, makes a lot of sense. What about your market category? How do you think about your market category? So our market category is definitely new. Uh, we are displacing work that people are doing internally. So we're just going to go into these large enterprises and they have, 
either dedicated integration teams or you know integration efforts that are maintained like team by team or service by service. So this category, Gartner calls this journey time orchestration. And it is, which I think is a relatively apt descriptor. We, we add the word customer into there because we think that's an important context to this. What we're seeing is that this type of capability exists internally at the tippy top of the market. You know, we kind of got a little bit of a preview of this, you know, and, and earlier in our life where we got to work with some amazingly talented people at Bank of America and at Amazon. They're like, okay, how can we take an infrastructure like this you know, and then make this available to everybody else? as SaaS, right? You know, and, you know, and that's effectively like what, what we're out there doing. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $30 million to date. Can you just sure. talk us through what you've learned about fundraising throughout that journey? I mean, the big thing is you've got to have people who believe in you as the founder um, and also believe in the vision, right? So it's like the vision for the technology, the vision for the market, uh, you know, who like understand the problem well enough to move forward. Uh, fraud was kind of hard to raise for, you know, people really People understood machine learning and you know, risk signals. Um, you know, they did not understand like the operational piece of that and like what moving that forward is. So I would definitely say that like, you've got to find someone uh, who is comfortable with starting from a white kind of like piece, a you know, blank sheet of paper, and drawing that forward. Um, and that, that's just like essential. Like if you're founding a company that you know is truly doing something that's like you know from the scratch and moving forward. We spent a lot of time with people who had opinions about what this market might look like based off of what they'd seen in the past. And they were always just a little bit off. And I think one of the things that I would definitely couch for is like, if you're looking for people who might be good people to talk to, look for former founders, look for people who built category creating companies in the past, right? Because they're going to be the people who are going to be the most excited about doing this because it is scary. Uh, it is scary starting from zero. So finding someone who has done it before, who knows that it's possible and who's one doing this does a ton in order to like, kind of get them into that mindset of just understanding where you're going uh, and then having the conviction to, to help together ultimately the fundraising you need. Now, let's just imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? It's really about hiring. So there's some interesting things about hiring that I think you get said a lot. It's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, hire from your network, hire referrals, you know, good people, you know, bring in good people, like all that's true. You won't always be able to do that. There is no one thing that you can do that is more important than hiring well. And, you know, hiring well is easy to think that hiring well is like, well, if I have this person who has a great pedigree, who is, you know, good on paper, shows up well, is very energized by the vision by the company and seems like they're going to be someone who's going to push these things forward. That's still not quite enough. <laughs> and I think there's no one thing that is more transformative for a business than hiring amazing talent. And there is no thing that is like more negative uh, than bringing in you know, potentially destructive people. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? I mean, the huge thing here is that we're looking at a world right now where there are thousands of APIs out there. Um, so basically every solution you would possibly be interested in pulling in, it kind of comes to you on an API. Our big vision on this is like one, it's like expanding the like the core interface of what we do so that mere mortals can interact with all of these different tools and all the data created by these tools. 
So some of that goes into it, just like really core, like the design of how do you work with a business user who doesn't have that kind of technical context. AI is a big piece of this. You know, we are at a spot where just being able to conversationally interact with really complex topics and really complex data is enormous, especially when you might be someone who is you know, a line level analyst or even someone who's like a tier one customer service rep who is just trying to figure out if it's okay to refund a $5,000 TV that hasn't been returned to the warehouse yet. And so like those type of things, you know, seem like they should be easy to do. Uh, but like, asking those type of questions is just out of the reach of regular humans. And AI, I think, is a huge piece of that. And then like, lastly, it's really just about the marketplace. There's a ton of people who have like deep, deep experience in understanding what these different types of attacks and motives look like, and they would love to share it between each other. Our platform gives them the ability to do that on the same spec, right? So it's just a little bit in the company's name, but like effectively all fraud tools are built by hand. We kind of have to learn them from scratch. Like we're giving them like a common language. So that as they're developing solutions, as they're building this experience of their careers, they have the ability to impact effectively the industry as a whole, not just, you know, the, the specific company that they may be working for. Amazing. I love the vision. I, I love how you're approaching building it. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders listening in just want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Uh, yeah, they should come check us out at uh, www.specprotected.com. All one word. Awesome. Nate, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. And again, really enjoyed it. Perfect. Thanks, Brad. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 